Hi, and welcome back to the Utojua Hujui podcast. Now, a quick word before we get in. Your girl, Aileen, has a little bit of a potty mouth, which means she does not mind her language and she speaks the fluent French, <laughs> um, which is all to say that I understand that some people are a little bit uncomfortable with this language. So here's just a warning for you. If, however, you are not uncomfortable and you would like to learn about the world around you and capitalism and colonialism and just like... All this fun shit with a dazzling, brilliant, and funny host, if I do say so myself. Um, keep listening. Hi, ho, hello, and welcome back to the Uta Jo Hujui podcast. How have you guys been? Me, <laughs> y'all, I've been better. Um, so like as I was writing this particular section of the script, I was recovering from dehydration because I simply forgot to drink water and lived my life as is in a city that averages like 32 degrees Celsius with like no cloud coverage. So yeah. What are you? An idiot sandwich. I just forgot to drink water and... I, I, I actually experienced dehydration. So please, drink water. Majini Uhai. Uhai? Ahai? One minute. I just googled it and it's Uhai and I genuinely feel like somebody should revoke my citizenship at this point because yo, that is a grade one word that left my 26-year-old brain and I'm embarrassed to say the least. Any hoozles? <laughs> For the living among us, welcome back to the Utojo Hujui podcast again. Um, as you know, I like to spend the first bit of my podcast talking about whatever I want to talk about, you know, before I proceed to talk about whatever I um, want to talk about, but with structure. So first, some admin. I am not in my podcasting closet, nor am I bumming a studio for my former employers. I'm saying this because the audio might not be great. You might hear crows and bats and, and children crying and, and lawnmowers and dogs and just you, you'll hear a lot of background noise and i'm gonna try my best to edit it out and keep it as as nice as possible um but please forgive me and thank you so much for being understanding with this like i have even gone to the extent of recording without the fan on so you wouldn't hear any more noise i'm oh i'm going to suffer the sweat this oh and the way i'm dehydrated my god anyway as you can tell because of everything that's gone on this week the drink that i am drinking today is water just plain life-giving like heaven affirming water it is so important i cannot stress this please drink water now as for what i wanted to bitch and whine and moan about like originally i wanted to talk about labor rights in africa because like nigeria just approved um the first labor union in africa for uber bolt and other ride sharing app drivers um, which was like really really cool and in kenya there were also like two separate proposals like the first one was to stop your employer from calling you after work which i am completely completely for then the second one was one about um securing intern welfare like make basically making sure that interns are considered as employees and have some protections afforded to them and then a couple of days ago i saw or read that our mps spent over 200 million shillings on a retreat in mombasa and i'm like you mean to tell me that after the president of this of this country said, hey guys, we need to minimize on travel in order to like reduce government spending, right? So that we can mitigate the cost of living for Kenyans. Y'all went and spent 200 million shillings on a retreat. Are you fucking kidding me? Do you not, 
It feels like every single time the government does something that raises the cost of our living by like removing fuel subsidies, removing the UNGA subsidies, removing the cushioning that we had for electricity and now even water, then you hear that people are spending hundreds of millions of shillings on bullshit travel like this, something that could have been a Zoom meeting, by the way. You start to realize, like, you start to question why it is that they're raising the cost of our living. Are you raising it because the government is trying to do projects that will that will grow the economy and spur development and like protect and cushion the most vulnerable among us or are you raising the cost of living because you want us to subsidize your fucking bullshit like this is oh I, I remember sending this message to somebody and i was like the kenyan government is so lucky so lucky that people don't want to protest and burn it all down because we feel it we all feel that fuck everything energy that at least for me, inspires me to commit some arson, but I can't. And I'm speaking for myself when I say this, but what's keeping me back is that fundamentally, I, I, there is order. There is some sort of order and the destabilizing impact of justice will upend everything I know, right? And I know that to fix these problems requires that every single person in this country goes out to the street and says, fuck you, for months to the government until they actually do something. But nobody's willing to take that risk. We all have to take that risk together. Or, like, I'm just... Mm, I mean, we could, like, to, even, to even dissect this further, we can also, like, chalk it up to me being very comfortable with my privilege. Like, let me not lie to you. I am very comfortable with my privilege. Um, which makes which sometimes means that like the criticisms I render on society or I or I attribute to society kind of ring hollow sometimes. But I'm a human being and I'm allowed to be a hypocrite. And also just because I have privilege does not mean I cannot criticize the world around me. Just because I benefit from privilege does not mean I can't criticize the fact that I have it, right? Anyway, I guess what I'm mad about is just the state of everything. Um and it is it is amplifying my my already like tense background anxiety but you know we're gonna try um to move past it we're going to try to to, i don't know to, to figure out a way to solve this in a way that's not just violence or mass protest like the french I, oh man, I wish, I wish we had that kind of energy in Kenya, that kind of, we will shut everything down for all of y'all people, including people like myself who are benefiting from, from the way things are in this country sometimes. We're going to make things difficult for everyone up there, myself included, if it gets you to listen to us. And I just, I get it. I, I, yeah. Anyway, moving on. Um full disclosure i really struggled to write this episode like the content wasn't vibing with a little voice in my head that usually co-signs most of my bullshit and i think that this is because this episode is a little different i'm not really talking about a historical concept as much as i am attempting to explore an analogy for the state of african development which makes this episode more conceptual than historical and it's like really hard to script that kind of stuff because it works best in conversations but where I'm at right now, like everyone I know has a has things to do in, like right now and I can't really get anyone on here. So it's just going to be me talking into the void and hoping that I get positive vibes back. Um, and also the idea is still gestating in my mind and it's and it's a work in progress. So 
I'm really hoping I've structured it well because when something is a work in progress in my mind, it's like super, super, it gets, it gets super, super jumbled. Um, and I hope most of this makes sense. And away we go! So today we are talking about cargo movements, although um, you've probably read them as cargo cults somewhere in the internet. And the term cargo movement is a term given to a number of religious or political movements that started when indigenous societies and peoples came into contact with Western civilization and technology. Um, things like radios, airplanes, ready-made and abundant and processed foods, um, all this shit that was called cargo, hence cargo movement. Um, these indigenous peoples then attempted to get these goods themselves by replicating the rituals that caused the cargo and, and, and that tech Western technology to land in their soil in the first place. Things like building plane towers and runways, signaling radio military marches, etc. Um, like a really good example of a cargo movement that we were all not not subjected to, but we all kind of remembered existed was the cargo movement that is uh, that venerates Prince Philip. Um, I can't remember where it is, but I remember when he died in like 2021. Um, a lot of reporting was done on that particular community. And I also believe like they expressed deep regret to Elizabeth saying like, we are so sorry. And they also gave something in tribute to him. Um, I remember as the story was coming out about this particular um, community whose name just really escapes me. G um, give me one moment. It is called the Prince Philip Movement. It is a religious sect followed by the Castom people in the southern island of Tana in Vana Van Vanuatu. Vanuatu? Yeah. Um, they believe in the divinity of Prince Philip. Um, I, again, like when, when you hear something like that, when you hear that there is a group of indigenous people somewhere out there that treats a white person or something that's white as a god or as a divine in any way, it, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds fucked up it sounds like it's almost it sounds like the wet dream of some white supremacist somewhere um and it doesn't sound real and i think that's part of the reason why these cargo movement movements are so fascinating from the outside looking in because these movements are the closest we might get to examine to like how we might respond to magic as a species um, or rather the unexplained. Um, remember that like any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Um, and when that technology falls from mana like the heavens, it takes on more magical properties. Like, um, yeah, to explain what I mean, I want you to think of the movie The Gods Must Be Crazy. In that movie, a, co a Coke bottle falls from the sky and lands on the ground unbroken in the middle of the Kalahari Desert, right in Sandland, a tribe that lives away from industrial civilization. Now, to us, a Coke bottle is nothing. Like, we see them every single day. But that's only because we know about and are familiar with how Coca-Cola exists and comes to be in our kiosks and our supermarkets, right? We are familiar with the global trades that allows sugar from Cuba to be sent to a factory in Vietnam to make an American product that is then shipped to Kenya. We are familiar with the marketing and branding and the branding practices that explain why the Coke bottle is branded the way that it does, why it has that shape, why that shape is so important, and why that shape to us is saved in our brains as Coca-Cola. Without this background of knowledge, something as commonplace as Coca-Cola to us becomes fucking alchemy. 
right? A Coca-Cola bottle is magic. You take sand and that sand becomes glass and that glass is then shaped. Somebody else has, has to have come up with that design. That, like, whether, whether uh, a bottle is, is, sorry, whether Coca-Cola is bottled might not even be in the US because I know there's somewhere in Mombasa there's a Coca-Cola bottling plant, right? So you then take that intellectual property from the US, somehow bring it to Kenya, also get us to a point where we can manufacture the bottles ourselves. Give us the recipe for the liquid. Like it's it's magic and ah, oh. and it's so impossible that if you don't understand all these things, if you're not aware of them, then this Coca Cola bottle feels like it ought to have supernatural origins. So imagine like you have no idea how what coke is you have no idea what a glass is you have no idea how these things came to be and this coca-cola bottle just lands on your on like just, just lands wherever you're chilling that's what the movie's about so like in the movie it's found by the sand tribe or the, the, the people that live in the sand territory and then the, and then this family assumes that it must be a gift from the gods right but then it also causes tension in the community because there's only one coke bottle and it's super useful so one man from the family i think his name is key is how they say it in the movie um he and promises that he's going to take this evil thing this evil coca-cola bottle and throw it off the edge of the earth um yeah so this is not a movie it's not a podcast about the movie so i'm just gonna wrap things up i've spent too much time wasted too much time freaking out over coca-cola but i only brought up this movie to help explain three things that one modern society is fucking magic y'all the fact that i can talk to somebody in the uk and china and america and germany what have you even even my brother wherever he is um the fact that i can do that is magic the fact that i have an iphone or a telephone in general the fact that i have wi-fi clothes plumbing is magic and it it only it doesn't feel that way because we've just become so used to it um to the point where our familiarity with these things has led us to believe that we actually understand how they work when you know speaking personally i have no idea how wi-fi works i just wanted to work um Thing number two, in the absence of understanding, of not knowing how something works, people often turn to rituals and religious things to explain how that thing came to be. Like, remember how people were quick to blame COVID on the sins of the world in 2020? People were so quick on that shit. And it's just that, to my mind, human beings don't like understanding something. They don't like not getting it. Um... And we like feeling like we know everything when in reality we know nothing. We are the Jon Snow. And everything we learn is constantly reminding us not only that we are smaller pieces of shit, but that we know nothing in the best possible way. Because if we know nothing, then that's the first step to knowing something, right? Um, And that takes you to fact number three. We need to empathize with the communities we will be discussing today um, and just cargo movements in general. Try to consider their perspectives and remember that communities and human beings are incredibly complex, motivated by a number of factors, but still worth treating and considering very seriously and on their terms. Now, number three is really important as we get into cargo movements because some of the rituals I am going to be discussing sound ridiculous it sounds like a kid wearing their parents clothes to act like a grown-up is the best way to put it um 
And they will sound that way because they we're working from very different value systems. Um, but the reminder is mainly for me in my delivery. Um, I'm going to try to be respectful. Um, there are some moments where I will be, you know, take a moment to be like, what the fuck is going on? Um, but I also will take that moment to bring myself back and remind myself that it's okay not to understand what's going on. Just treat it seriously and like not make a joke about it. So cargo movements. Yes. The first recorded instant of a cargo movement was the Tika movement in Fiji in 1885. In fact, a lot of the world's cargo movements are in this area of the world, like um, Melanesia. And the reason why this is, is because starting in the 17th century, the Melanesian people had increasing and often deadly contact with European colonizers. The invaders took everything while leaving very little behind. They destroyed their communities, dispossessed them of their land, and denigrated their culture. The colonizers were, in a way, not in a way, the colonizers did kill their way of life. And now the Melanesian people were reduced to serfs, mere peasants on the land that they once owned, controlled, and cultivated for their benefit. It is against this backdrop that the cargo movement emerged in Fiji and more generally in the region. In fact, cargo movements often arise in times of crisis so or stressful situations like war, illness, natural catastrophes, and colonization. Quoting now from the Sapiens website, and I quote, cargo movements may have helped Melanesians cope with the uncertainty of their rapidly changing conditions. They also served crucial social functions. By bringing indigenous people together to enact them, these rituals forged a sense of common identity and helped create a collective consciousness, end quote. Put simply, they were a way to hold on when everything was screaming at you to let go. The cargo movements were a way to respond to the realities of colonization, while holding on to the past that that very colonization had rendered obsolete. Because remember, like I said in the very beginning, um, cargo movements, what they do is they attempt to replicate the rituals, like the, the plane towers, the signaling of the planes to land, the, the military fanfare that, uh, that commonly follows or, pre- or predates the arrival of cargo on the island. But they don't really understand what it means or how it works or how it connects to much larger systems. So they are essentially taking the actions without taking the meaning and then ascribing their own meaning to it, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Um, now, the Tika movement promised to restore the community to the golden age of ancestral potency. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, unfortunately, it didn't work. The movement had lost steam by the early 1900s, but cargo movements continued to pop up in Melanesia, coming to a head in the Second World War. One such movement that arose out of this is called the John Froome Movement on the remote island of Tana and the South Pacific nation of Vanuatu. Uh, yes, is, not was. The movement is still very much alive and they celebrate John Froome Day every February 15th, which if I have my dates correct is about a week away. On February 15th, the members of the John Froome cargo movement honor the American pilot who is said to have landed in Vanuatu in the 1930s. According to legend, Froome appeared one night in the 1930s after the village elders had downed kava shells in order to make them more receptive to messages from the spirits. Now, kava is a psychoactive drug made from the root of the stump of the kava shrub. Um, It can cause feelings of happiness and relaxation as well as numb your mouth and throat. So I'd also imagine it would have very good uh, properties for dental medicine. Um, But when Froome arrived, he spoke their language. He told them that he had come to rescue the people of Tana from the missionaries and colonial officials. 
Froome told the people of Tana that they should stop adhering to the colonizers' whims, they should get rid of their clothes, throw away the money, stop taking their children to school, and they should return to a traditional way of life. Froome also promised to bring loads of cargo from America if they prayed to him. Cargo like radios, TVs, trucks, ice boxes, and of course, Coca-Cola. So every February 15th, the people of Tana Island um, perform a ritual to bring these goods down. In the morning, several men dressed in makeshift U.S. Army uniforms set themselves up on a mound overlooking the village and in sight of the rest of the community. One of these men carries Old Glory, which is the American flag, and it's folded precisely to only reveal the stars. The flag is then raised onto a pole, and which is made from a tree trunk, and as the flag billows in the wind, the community cheers. Thereafter, a man dressed in a blue suit and ceremonial sash, kind of like a general, leads the men from the mound overlooking the village to the open to some open ground that's like right in the middle of, middle of the village. This man is the general, like I said, and once he leads the men with the flag down, um, more men dressed in makeshift U.S. Army uniforms emerge from the huts. Then all these men march together in perfect step into, past the general, they then carry rifles made of bamboos on their shoulders, and the tips of these bamboo makeshift rifles are painted red to represent the bloody bayonets. On their chests and backs, the letters USA are painted in red. As they march, they make their way to a clearing in the forest that looks like a landing strip. On the strip is a wooden replica of a light aircraft, a control tower made of bamboo, a satellite dish made of mud and straw, and torches lining the runway. The men light the torches. They then use the flags they carried with them to signal planes to land, and they turn to the sky in anticipation. But the planes never come. The cargo John Froome promised would come to them if they prayed to him never comes. When an anthropologist asked the chief of the village why the community keeps the faith, because, you know, to us it's a bit ridiculous from the outside looking in, right? Like, why are you trusting this random guy to give to sustain your community, right? And the chief replied, You Christians have been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to return to earth. And you haven't given up hope. Indeed, like hearing something like that, hearing that level of insight and also wit um, is incredible because it basically not suggests it. He, what he's telling us is, are we so different? What makes you think that your hope and your faith is more justified than mine? Why? And I think that's something else that like, interest us about cargo movements because many of us myself included when i started researching this topic approach this entire conversation from an assumed superiority right because we've grown up in a judeo-christian world like we've grown up in a world that constantly legitimizes the christian faith or rather the abrahamic religions such such that it's not weird for you to to subscribe to these to these faiths because we're so familiar with them but the second that somebody expresses faith in something that we consider to be ridiculous or nonsensical or we just don't understand or see the value in, we are so quick to devalue that faith. We are so quick to attempt to delegitimize it. But why? In that way, cargo movements are a response to colonialism in a way that, I guess, reflects the reality of the community. Like, I haven't done enough 
anthropological or sociological studies into them, so I don't profess any sort of expertise. But when I started researching them, it got me thinking about our relationship to the West, specifically as Africans, um, and about how we might be in a cargo movement, that kind of relationship with the West. Um, we are so dependent on them for the most basic things. Um, we attempt to replicate their models and actions in an attempt to experience that same bounty, yeah? Just kind of like how the John Froome, the members of the John Froome movement replicate the, the landing of the airplanes and the signaling of the air towers, etc. to get the cargo to land. I feel like that's what we're trying to do as we develop. We are hoping that as we repeat their approach to development, we can reclaim all that we lost, our land, our cultures, our ability to live in a world defined by terms that we had a hand in carving. But is it working? Or as we, as Africans, as underdeveloped people of the world, are we merely chasing waterfalls? Is the hope that the chase inspires worth the disappointment it fosters and festers? Are we, in Africa, part of a massive cargo movement with absolutely no end in sight? I will leave that thought with you. I'm looking down at my recording device. I genuinely thought this episode would be longer, but it is not. Um, so I guess enjoy this really short episode, I hope. I hope it was fun. I hope it was structured somewhat. Um, thank you so much for listening. Bye. Oh, and make good choices. Thank you so much for listening to the Utajuo Hujui podcast. I really appreciate you giving me your time of day. I know that your time is very valuable. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram at utajuahujui.pod. That is at U-T-A-J-U-A-H-U-J-U-I dot P-O-D on Instagram. Please don't forget to like, share, review, do all the nice things. I could really use the boost. Okay, enjoy the rest of your time on this planet. Goodbye.